thank you very much for listening, Pete. If you're on a long walk, commuting to work, which you shouldn't be, you should be at home. Your job should have you working from home unless you work at a grocery store. Then I say thank you. Thank you for risking your health so I can have sugar pops. Do they still? I don't even know if they still make sugar pops. Loved them as a kid. That was not a free plug. I did not. If you like my theme music there, that is by Ken Vandermark. It's a song called Turn Your Head from his album Utility Hitter. And it's copywritten. ASCAP 21st Mobile. Today's guest is Ross Flournoy from the bands The Broken West and Apex Manor. It's a really great interview. If you don't know his music, I encourage you to go check out both of those bands. The Broken West was a big, was a big fan of their work. Um, I was in L.A. and friends with them when it they they started taking off and got a record deal with Merge. The beginning of the interview is a little. It's weird because Ross starts asking me a ton of questions, and we, I guess, technically didn't start the interview, but it's, A, it was hard to find a, a it was such an organic conversation, it was hard to find a place to, where it um, turned to Ross, it, and it also seems to sort of play into a lot of the themes of the uh, conversation, so I, I just kind of wanted, it sort of lays a groundwork. So I wanted to keep it in to, for perspective. There's a lot about me. I don't like this show to be about me. The, the, I like it to be about my guest, but it's, it's part of the story. Um, I'm very interwoven with the some of this happening, if that makes sense. We were all together. But anyway, it's about Ross Flournoy, a great songwriter, and uh, he's written some of my favorite songs. But I just wanted to lay that out there so you're not like listening to this going, why is Ross interviewing Matt? <laughs> um, also, if I have a weird hushed voice and it sounds like I'm trying to be sexy, uh, which is, I think, an impossibility, but if it sounds like I'm trying, it's because I'm recording this intro at a very early hour. My daughter is sleeping, my wife is sleeping, my dogs are sleeping, and I don't want to... If I rustle the dogs, they will bark for about a half hour, and I will be the enemy of everybody in my house. If this is your first time listening to my podcast, by the way, I just want to thank you for being here. Uh, I invite you to look at my library. If you're a fan of Ross Flournoy and his music, I've interviewed a ton of musicians. Dave Bazan from Pedro the Lion, and of course he's done great solo work. Wayne Kramer of the MC5, Rodney Anonis from the Dead Milkman, a lot of them. And there's a lot of other great interviews that aren't musicians, so feel free to uh, peruse the old uh, library there. And if you like what you're hearing, be it old listener or new listener, and you want to hear more, you can become a Patreon sub subscriber, patreon.com slash Matt Dwyer. And I do bonus episodes there. Lorraine Newman from Saturday Night Live, the original cast member, there's a bonus episode of her. I do commentary on every episode, pictures, uh, videos, not videos now because I'm locked in the home and that wouldn't be very exciting. Uh, my next week's episode is uh, legend John Lurie. Going to be a bunch of uh, bonus material for the John Lurie, uh, voicemails, emails, all kinds of stuff. Should be really cool. So check it out if you like. Would you be okay with that? Check it. <laughs> I don't know what I'm rambling on there. Uh, I can tell you this. My dog is sitting under my desk as I do this, and I can smell his breath from here, and it's really uncomfortable. If you can't subscribe to Patreon but you want to help me support the show, 
write and review the show on iTunes. That would be immensely helpful. Or just tell your friends about it. And if you want to find the all things Matt Dwyer, go to themattdwyer.com. It'll take you to merch, social media, lots of fun stuff there. So please check all that out. Uh, that's that's it. There's Oh, there's two podcasts I enjoy listening to, Hunk with Mike Bridenstine and uh, Kill Gallon's Pub with Joe Kill Gallon. Uh, it's great that podcasting, I think we can still do it. You know, we can call people and make these happenings. That's the other thing is, is I talked to Ross on the phone. We've been, I've been relegated to phone interviews, so I can't do them face-to-face. So the old cell phones sometimes make funny sounds. It's just part of the reality. I'm working on upgrading my technology for the, the, the for the improv, improv? <laughs> for the for the uh, interviews, I should get to this interview because I'm clearly it's five in the morning and the brain hasn't woken up yet. So please enjoy my interview with Ross Flournoy. <laughs> We're talking through a computer, is that right? That's what we're doing. What are you, 70 years old? <laughs> well, yeah, basically. I am. I'm and, a... and that, that, would, that, would, that would make you like 90. <laughs> you are older than me. Let's not forget. I know. You know, it's, it's uh, funny because I used to always be the young guy on the scene, like back in the comedy world in Chicago. I was like the young when, upstart. When was, when was that? Like in like in the 70s? Yeah, like uh, me and uh, Carlin would hit pal around. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I was hired by Second City at 19, in 1991, and I was 21 years old, and it was I was a handful of people to have been hired at that age. Riveting tale. I you know. were 21? I was 21. Wait, so did, did you not go to college? No, I dropped out. Where, where did you start? Did you start at uh, University of Illinois? No, I went to Columbia College for about uh, a half a semester, and I, I was doing a lot of coke and fucking around. And then I also was just like, I was just like, I'm going to go do th- shows. I'm not going to fucking waste my time. And I started doing shows around uh, Chicago and taking classes. And the next thing I knew, I was hired by Second City. So, so who was like who who was in who was in your class at Second City? I mean, I know you're friends with Horatio and Kechner and McKay, so I assume they were all there at the same time. Is that right? Yeah, I toured with Kechner. Uh, I toured with Horatio a little, uh, McKay a little, but we like all drank together like lunatics. So who else was in that was sort of in that uh, in that scene? Even if they weren't, even if they're not famous now, like who were some of the the the, the, the stalwarts of that time? Uh, there was Kevin Dorf, Brian Stack, who both spent a lot of time working on Conan. Rachel Dratch, Tina Fey. Yeah. A little above me was yeah. uh, Amy Sedaris, Stephen Colbert, Steve Carell, Paul Danello, David Pasquazzi. Yeah. Um, when I first went to Second City, when I was 16 years old, Dan Castellaneta was on the main stage. He was the voice of Homer Simpson. Uh, God, no shit. Castellaneta was there, huh? Yeah. And, when, and then, like, over the years, like, uh, when I, because I worked on staff for a long time, so 
uh, like I would get to watch Mike Myers, Chris Farley. I, I actually got, I probably told you stories about Chris Farley before. I don't know. Were you buddies with him? I was not like yeah. huge buddies. I was well known for having LSD at the time. <laughs> and, uh, it got around that I always had acid on me. So, and I would never charge for it. That was because I was like, kind of like, yeah. you, you know, I, a, I didn't want to be a drug dealer, but I also was just like, can't charge for the experience, man. You know, I was 18 or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Chris would hit me up, and I would go over to his house, and he would take acid, and I'd smoke pot, and I never tripped with him. But we would have long conversations in the in his, and then I barked. He, he seemed. He seemed. He seemed like what? He seemed like he was a really good guy. He seemed like he was a really good guy. Uh, he was one of the sweetest people you'd ever want to meet. Like, and as and yeah, yeah if yeah. we were in the comfort of his apartment, he would turn off like after a while he would turn off the comedy and we would just talk once we exited his apartment he, yeah. would, he would turn it back on right right um right which is i think part of the reason you know it's funny here go ahead yeah you know it's, it's funny hearing you talk about what that i mean even you know you have you, you just briefly mentioned sort of the like the lsd story and, the, and that that was that there was this element of sort of partying in that scene back then um, you know, just through, I guess, just because I was living in LA and I was a single guy, I, I ended up in the last five years, I've, I've dated, I've dated a lot of, I dated a lot of women who are in the comedy world and in, in, in very, you know, in, in various sort of different roles. Like I dated, uh, I dated quite a few TV writers, you know, some who, Right for late night, but I did. You know, I, I dated. Uh, I went on some dates with like some comedic actresses, and and you know, and a lot of them, as you probably know, are in some, in some way or the other, uh, you know, affiliated with either uh, UCB or uh, you know, what's the what's the one in LA Groundlings? Yeah. Um, and it's it's funny, like I don't, you know, that my impression of that scene now is it's very it's very chaste. There's not really, not to say that there's not the occasional guy or girl who is doing blow, but like at least these women that I sort of encountered, uh, it, it's not uh, it's not a hard partying scene in the way that it was maybe, you know, in the stories you hear about SNL, you know, in the, I mean, it, it's, it's a much, it seems like it's a much mellower, at least in terms of drug use uh, scene than it was 20, 30, 40 years ago. Yeah, I think, at least I think in the sketch world, I think we saw, we've seen so many people uh, go that, and it's not as, it's just not yeah. as, and uh, there's more awareness. Back in like Second City days, even before my time, like people would just, you know, they left the taps unlocked and people would just walk in. You could pour yourself a beer. And it was a lot like that when I was around. And right. we, we used to always have booze backstage. And I mean, everybody... There wasn't as much coke, but we definitely drank like fucking lunatics. Right, right. But uh, yeah, and, that's not it's not that, that's not the impression that I got from sort of the way it is now. I mean, I think it's real, and maybe that's just like times have changed, you know. And it's like everyone's more, and you factor in that it's in Los Angeles, which is obviously a very health conscious place. But it's like I don't know. In my very limited sort of like just peripheral involvement with these sketch people in LA. 
they're more interested in, and this is a good thing, I think, but I mean, they're, they're, they're going to bed early so they can train for the marathon that they're going to do the next morning. They're not, they're not drinking, they're, you know, they're not like drinking like a fifth of George, J- George Dickel and going like going to, um, the, what's the fucking, what's the jump? What's the place? What's the place with the, with the titties, with the pasties? Oh, uh, Jumbo's clown room. Jumbo's clown room. Yeah. That, they're not, they're not drinking like a fifth of Jack and going to Jumbo's. It's not, that's not the way these people are anymore. You know, I think too, it's like in Chicago, like, you're in the other cities, you're in your 20s, you're getting your chops, you're kind of living, vicar- you know, you're not vicariously, you're sort of emulating your idols. My idols were musicians and comedians, right. and they all lived hard, and I was like, this is what you do, right? Uh, you, I, I unfortunately right. got to L.A. and uh, still kept drinking heavily. <laughs> uh, probably hurt right. the career right. a little bit, and but I, I think a lot of people, but I definitely was more serious about my career here. I wrote every day, I worked really hard. Um, I, but I also, you know, drank right. and chased skirt and all the other empty things. Yeah. 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 Well, that probably has more to do with your particular fucking pathology, you know, but, uh, <laughs> but I, I hear, I hear, I, I hear what you're saying. <laughs> but it, I mean, I was hanging out with you guys. I didn't even hang out in the comedy world. I actually was hanging out more with the broken West and music mu- other musicians then i i would like kind of abandon the comedy world because i found the music world far more fun and less headaches yeah i mean and that was you know i think we we had a similar uh it's funny that you say that because i think we, and we, we never talked about this sort of explicitly but i think we felt the same way that there was something refreshing about hanging out with with you and, you know, and, and let's not forget you, there were other people around, there were friends of yours that you brought who were in the comedy world, you know, it was like Duncan Trussell or Bronger, um, you know, who were kind of hanging out with us too. And I think there was something refreshing for us to hang out with comedians where, you know, cause bands can be, well, I shouldn't say this. I mean, I, I always thought that scene in the mid aughts in, 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 you know, Silver Lake and Echo Park, I always thought it was by and large a very warm and very genuine collection of people, but I think there was something refreshing about us, you know, hanging out with you guys where you were pursuing something different and, you know, bands can be catty just as I'm sure comedians can. And, you know, there's jealousy and there's uh, a sense of competition. And, you know, I think that we really liked hanging out with you guys in part because it was like, we were, we were pursuing different things and we didn't feel like we were in competition with you guys, you know? Yeah, I felt like it was, I don't know if if I look back at that time nostalgically, because I do think about it a lot, but it was a very, because we had C-level records, which was kind of like the hub of the neighborhood, right? and people would convene there, and it was like, you could go there and know there would be beer and like, at least three people you could hang out with for the next five hours. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I, 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 I felt like, even while I was in it, I was like, oh, this is pretty magical and pretty hip thing that's going on right now. Yeah, you know, and, and I, don't, I don't know if you've discussed this on the podcast before, but I feel like it, even if you have, it bears repeating. And that is, you know, what you and so, if anyone, for anyone who is, for the people who are listening and maybe don't know about this, Matt and Duncan Trussell started in like, I don't know, I want to say it was 05 or, at least, you know, at the latest 06, uh, you guys started the Cornfoot Comedy Hour, which was, <laughs> which was this, you know, but, but it was, it was really, really kind of ahead of its time. 
And it's like, and you brought in like a lot of big people. So anyway, for listeners who don't know what that was, it was like, you know, Matt and Dwyer and Trussell put together this thing where it was a comedy show at this record store in Echo Park called Sea Level, which was amazing and amazing store. And uh, our friend Todd owned it. And anyway, you guys would do it, what, every month or six weeks uh, at night, you know, it'd be like a Wednesday night, you buy a keg and then you'd have like Mark Merritt and Eddie Pepitone and fucking Mary Lynn, whatever her name is, Rice Cup, or like, you know, it was like, it was a real parade of like really impressive talent. I mean, this was way before anyone knew who the fuck Mark Merritt was, you know, and you guys put that on and it was like, again, it was way ahead of its time. And, you know, that was, I just, I too have fond memories of that era because it was like, it was this sort of intercession or inter intermingling of musicians and comedians and it was a shitload of fun you know it was it was you saw some great comedy i mean i saw some shit there that bombed but i saw some shit that was really great it was the first time i ever saw Pepitone live you know but but it was a really it was a it was a really cool thing it was a really cool concept you know yeah that's what we wanted to do is just kind of bring the neighborhood together and the world together i don't know if that had if they had intermingled that much but that was our goal and uh, and then we would, I don't know, we bought free beer, and Duncan and I were so fucking broke at that time. I don't know how we pulled it off. But yeah, yeah. And I remember back then, Duncan was dating that lady uh, Natasha. Was how do you say her name? Legero. Yeah, he was. He, he just Legero. broken up with uh, Mary Lynn Rice Cup. Dumped him, and then he was heartbroken for a while. But then, yeah, he ended up with uh, Natasha for a long time. They lived together. I think I think she came and I think she hung out with us a few times too. Yeah, she. Came, I mean, it was pretty. I mean, if you wrote up a list of all the people who were around that, scene, Wyatt Senak was uh, one of them. He was around. Mm, mm. Holy shit! That that was one of the ones I I'll never forget. Saw him at Cornfoot, and then I was outside like, smoking a cigarette afterwards. And I don't know if he was smoking too, but he was out front. Ended up talking to him. He was like an up and coming stand up. He was awesome. And then what the fuck, you know? flash forward 15 years and he's on you know you turn on the tv and there he is and it's like you know i, I met that dude out in, in front of a fucking record store in Echo Park. you know <laughs> was it like because you guys you know i mean it was go ahead no no you go ahead, go ahead. oh i was just gonna ask because the broken west was just put come together at that time but did you guys have because you guys kind of ascended very quickly i mean it seemed like was it even a year you guys were a band before you had to deal with matador Let's see. It was, uh, God, um, it was probably, it was about two years and it was merge, not Matador. Oh, that's right. Merge. Matador is a great label, but, but yeah, it was, you know, it was, we started in the summer of 2004 and then we got our record deal in the summer of 2006. That's pretty. But yeah. It happened really fast. And then, you know, Sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just... Was the scene kind of weird to you? Because that... Does, I mean, that doesn't happen very often, does it? That fast? Um, you know, uh, I don't think it happens that often. I mean, it's not totally unheard of, but, like, it's, it's you know, it's not, it's not super, super uh, often that that'll happen. And, and I honestly don't really... No, I, I you know I don't remember why. I know Danny, who was a guitar player and sort of co-wrote a lot of the songs in the Broken West. Danny um, worked with a 
a woman who, sorry, I just burped, uh, worked with a woman who, whose mother was a realtor in uh, North Carolina, and she worked with a lot of the merge people. So I know we got some music to them that way. And then also we, in the fall of 2005, we opened for uh, Mac, who's one of the owners of uh, Merge. He has a project called Portostatic, and we opened for Portostatic at Spaceland. So, yeah, it happened really fast. Um, you know, it did not obviously last that long or go very far, but it did happen fast. And, you know, I was, I was very... Uh, yeah, I mean, I moved to L.A., you know, wanting to play music, and, you know, Emerge was was one of the very few record labels that I sort of dreamed of being on. And so, um, yeah, it was kind of crazy. And, and again, I you know, I, I, why it happened that way, I mean, yeah, we had a couple ends with them, but, like, how everything turned out the way it did, I, I don't know exactly. I, I think a lot of it was just good luck and timing. Did you feel a pressure at all when you got that contract? Because I remember you guys went from, like, I was working in a restaurant with Danny, and it went from, like, we all yeah, were struggling, and, and then, then Dan had a iPhone when nobody had an iPhone. It was like, suddenly you guys had some bread. <laughs> yeah, I remember, I remember that. I remember he, he was, Danny was the first person I ever knew, was the first person I knew who had an iPhone. He got one of the... Like literally the first generation, he got one. Um, yeah, you know, we ended up sort of. I mean, again, it's all relative because we were just broke ass uh, kids in our twenties. Uh, I, I don't want to make it sound like we were flying in Learjets or anything, but like for broke ass dudes, yeah, we ended up making a, a little bit of money through licensing songs to TV and film. So, um, hence Danny buying the iPhone. Um, <laughs> But, you know, it, 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 yeah, I mean, in terms of pressure, I definitely didn't feel pressure when we signed. It was more just elation and excitement, you know. I, I would say I felt pressure when we started the tour because you were, you're out there basically trying, you're promoting a product, you're trying to sell your band and you're trying to sell your music. I felt a lot of pressure then, and then I definitely felt pressure on our follow-up, on our second record, and again, this pressure was coming from no one but myself. Well, and and maybe my bandmates, but like it wasn't it's not like Merge ever put any pressure on us or anyone else did. But you know, yeah, you do start to feel pressure. You're like, shit, this is uh, this is real. Like this is something that is being you know you can buy in any record store. And now I am in Columbus, Ohio, and I'm hungover and exhausted, but I have to get my dick up so that I can play this show and try to sort of you know, and, and, and try to get people turned on to what we're doing. So, you know, yeah, there was that pressure, but, but never anything from the powers that, that were. Was there ever any times like when you're on the road, you're like, ah, oh, fuck, this isn't what I thought it would be. Or were you like, this is better than I thought it would be. Oh, uh, no, I, I had the first, the first feeling you mentioned, I had that after a week of our first tour, you know, it was like, I was so fucking excited to go on our first tour. I, it was, you know, it's like every musician's dream. And I quit my day job. I was fucking so psyched. And probably a week or 10 days in, I was like, this is fucking hell on earth. <laughs> and I can't, I, and I can't believe I've based my entire life up until this point on trying to sort of do this because this really sucks. And, um, 
you know, and, and, you know, part of that, we, we just didn't know any better. I mean, we were, we were really stupid kids who had never toured before and you jump in. It's, it is a completely different mode of existence. Um, you know, I know you've toured, you know, you used to tour with second city and it's like touring is, it, it's different than going on road trips for business where you have meetings. It's a whole different animal. And it was, uh, you know, I, I didn't handle it well. And it's, you know, I, I just, in the last year went on tour for the first time in 10 years, I guess. And it was much more enjoyable this time, but it's still, it's fucking tough. You know, it's, uh, you feel rootless, you feel isolated, you feel, uh, you know, you feel alone. Um, you're in a different place every night. So there's no real, there's no like point of comfort to which you can kind of tether yourself because you're constantly in motion. So it's very, very disorienting. At least I found it to be so. It was when you first started, were you guys like, uh, we're going to build this and we're going to play fucking stadiums or did you have those goals or were you just sort of surprised by it all? Well, I was definitely surprised by it all, but yeah, I, I had those goals. I had that ambition where I was like, you know, I want to be, I don't think I ever said like, I want to be you too and be playing the Rose Bowl. I mean, as awesome as that would be like, but I remember like a real sort of a, a band that we, that at least for me, I was trying to emulate the arc of their career was, was Spoon. Because, you know, you have to remember this was like 2006, 2007, we're talking about. And Spoon was, was on Merge. So, you know, and we were on Merge. So we would like South by Southwest, you know, we, for the Merge showcase, we essentially opened for Spoon. We played at like 11 PM and they went on at midnight. And, and anyway, and, you know, in 2007, Spoon had released, they had just released this record, Ga Ga Ga. And that was the third record they'd released where they were building up to this thing. It was like 2002, that had really gotten some buzz and then 2005 got more buzz. And then this, this one came out in 2007 and it fucking blew up. And yeah, I think that record's gold. I think it sold half a million copies, but you know, but they, they had been a band for 10 years before they even started to get buzz, you know? And so it was like, I looked at them and I, they had a real organic arc to their career. It's not like they came out of the gate and were, you know, had a hit and then disappeared. Like they built it. So I definitely looked to them as a way to sort of like, I was like, I, I would like to have that kind of career arc. Did you, did you, cause you guys did the two albums and I was like, man, this third one is good. Cause the second one was great. Like I feel it was better than the first and I really liked the first one a lot, but I was like, man, this third album is yeah. going to fucking kick it in the ass. And these guys are going to be like, you know, Wilco or something. And did you have that right. anticipation? I mean, but n not before well, we didn't end up doing the third record, you know, it's like, it, yeah, I mean, it, I, we, we did that second record and, you know, we were never a big band that like, I don't, you know, anyone who's listening, I mean, I can guarantee they have not fucking heard of us, but, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it, it, we, we had, uh, you know, we, we, the, the first record, we got a little bit of buzz, you know, it's like we were in spin and we were in, I don't know, all the other shit that you would be in at, in that particular moment in time. And then, so, so the first record seemed like it was really well received. And the second record, we wanted to really kind of change it up. I think a lot of bands do. They're like, I don't want to just, you don't, you don't want to keep making the same record over and over. That's boring. 
but anyway, we, I think we went a little too far outside the box on that one. And, um, you know, so the second record was not as well received and it was kind of like, you know, on the first record we had probably three or four months where it was just kind of like perpetual buzz that we were getting asked to do all these things. And there was always people, it just seemed like people were interested. And then we put out that second record. People were interested for about a month and then it was just gone. And, you know, I think that's, that played no small role in us breaking up, you know, where we were just kind of like, I think we were so demoralized by the response to that record that, uh, you know, I think that was a pretty key contributing factor. There were a lot of personality issues too. I mean, I think it would, even if that right, the second record had kicked ass and sort of looked like it was building to something on a third record. Like I think maybe we could have kept the personality shit in check to, you know, kind of hit that goal, but I don't know. Not all the guys in the, in the band liked each other. <laughs> did Did you feel like you had any? No, it's true. You know, right? Did, was there anything that you look back on, perhaps in your own behavior, and you're like, "Oh man, I wish." Because I do that with myself almost every day, where I'm like, "Oh man, what the fuck was I thinking back then?" No, I mean, I was no, I was I was perfect the whole time. It was the rest <laughs> of the guys that were the fucking problems, you know. When it ended, were you? They were the real. They were the real problems. Yeah, that Dan Aid for. Specific- no, I mean, I listen. I was. I was. I was. Yeah, exactly, Dan Aid. I was. I was a drunk fucking buffoon for, you know, I don't know, starting in 2006 till the band broke up, and then and then for a couple years after that. But like, um, no, I'll, I'll never forget. There was this is our again on our first ever tour. I think we were opening for the Walkman in Cincinnati. And after we, after our set, you know, I don't know what I, God knows what I drank, but anyway, long story short, I, I collapsed into our merch table and, you know, in a way that memory and that story has really sort of become a metaphor for that whole time for me, you know, it's like, that's kind of how I was behaving. So I was, I don't think I was always the easiest uh, bandmate to be around. Uh, how how long did you you kept drinking for two years after the band broke up? Did was there more table crashing? Yeah, um, uh, there was uh, metaphorical table crashing. Yeah, a lot of it. <laughs> so, um, you know, so I, so so yeah, I, uh, I I quit drinking in 2011. So and the band broke up in 2009. So yeah, there was two more years ahead of me. Because because your first album after. The Broken West is called uh, the Year of Magical Drinking, and I've the uh, year, right? Did I get that wrong? No, no, no. You got it right. Yeah. Oh, which is also a great album. I mean, I've I've always been a fan of your music, but I mean, uh, when you wrote the album, was it sort of um, in praise of drinking, and then you was it like in praise of drinking, or or was it sort of like? Oh fuck! This is a. How did? What was your take on that? It was not in praise of drinking. I mean, I think the the title. You know, I I, I just came up with that stupid play on the Didion book. Uh, one day I was sitting outside and I was like, sometimes I just play. I don't know. You think of things in your brain, and I was like, oh, that's kind of funny. And um, no, I mean, I think if anything, that that record is a diary of me, uh, very much being in the in the in the enthrall of, in the thrall of drinking and, and not really knowing how to get out of it. Um, you know, I knew as early as, 
I'll never forget. It was around Christmas, 2009. I was, uh, I was visiting my family in Tennessee and I remember driving somewhere, whatever, doing something. They just hit me like a bolt of lightning. I was like, I'm an alcoholic and I'm going to have to quit at some point. I'm going to have to address this, but let's see, I guess it took about a year and a half before I finally addressed it, you know? And so, and in that year and a half was when I wrote and, and made that record that you're talking about, the Apex Man, the first Apex Man record. And um, so, yeah, it was, it was like I, I had the knowledge and the self-awareness that I was an alcoholic, but I wasn't ready to quit drinking. So that's kind of what that record's about. Do you have a recollection of what the last one you were just like, all right, this is done? Yeah. Yeah, very much so. Uh, it was... I think July 28, 2011. And, um, you know, I, I started where I was, my drinking began at noon. I would start with a shot of Jack Daniels, um, usually about six days a week. I think on Sundays, I usually was so kind of exhausted and cumulatively hungover that I would just be, you know, I'd be, uh, wiped out. But I start at noon and kind of keep going until one in the morning. I was good at pacing myself. I mean, I wasn't, you know, I was, I was not falling into merch tables at home and, you know, I wasn't vomiting, but, uh, but anyway, I remember July 28th. I, that morning I started drinking at 10 AM and, uh, you know, leading up to that, that day, I, I had, I was going through a pretty significant depression. So it's not like it just came out of nowhere that I was, all of a sudden I wake up when I'm drinking at 10. I mean, it did come out of nowhere, but you know, it, it all fits together. And, um, so that was the day. And, and then later that day I started to have, you know, sort of suicidal ideations, I guess you would say. And my, one of my best friends, Adam Vine, who you know very well, um, you know, he, uh, he, I was with him and he was very concerned and I flew home to Tennessee the next day. And that was kind of what started it. Did you just hang out at your parents' house or, or did you take more measures than that? Yeah, I hung out there for about, I, I hung out there for about three or four days. The original plan was for me to, so basically I had to fly home and tell my parents that I was an alcoholic and I was in real bad shape. And, um, and the original plan was that I would go to treat. I, I, by the way, I wanted to go to treatment. I was, uh, you know, it's not like Adam forced this. It wasn't like there was an intervention and I was sort of forced against my will. I, I desperately wanted it at that point. And, uh, but anyway, the, the, the original plan was that I would go to treatment in, uh, back in California. Cause it's where all my friends were and my girlfriend at the time. But, um, but after like day two or three, I was just, I was, I was getting, I was getting deeper and deeper into this hole and I didn't know if I could make it back to California because I was really worried I was going to try to hurt myself. So, um, so anyway, I ended up, so as a result of that, I ended up going to treatment in, in Tennessee and then I ended up living there for two and a half years after that. Uh, did you, after you, did you have any of those cliche fears where you're like, I don't know if I'll ever be able to write again because I don't have drinking, which I think a lot of people affiliate yeah. the two. Yeah. You'd be, you'd, you'd be a fucking imbecile if you didn't. I mean, if <laughs> anyone who, 
I mean, seriously, think, I mean, listen, anybody who, uh, notwithstanding the sort of younger people now who, you know, I, I, I have a lot of admiration for it, but that they don't get fucked up. They just, you know, go to yoga and jog. Like that's, uh, you know, that is the healthier way, but let's be honest, you know, 70% of the people in this business, whether it's music or comedy or acting or whatever, it's like, you just feel more alive and more tuned in to the frequency of the muse. If you've had three or four drinks and, or if you've done blow or whatever. So when you have spent your whole creative life doing that, that, and then you remove that, that, that element, then you are left with, you're like, what do I, how do I even do this? Like, I, I don't know if I had, you know, I, I wrote songs when I was in my teens, but like, you know, I'd never really past the age of 21. I'd never written a song completely sober. I mean, I, I was not writing when I was blackout drunk and I didn't get blackout that often, but like, you know, I was never stone cold sober when I was writing a song. So yeah, you're terrified. You're like, how the fuck am I going to do this? Also, we have that image in our head of like the guy with the cigarette burning, you know, glass of whiskey hunched over a piano or a table. <laughs> you know, it's like it's forced. And I, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I actually never wrote or created. I did performed drunk, and I probably, I don't think I, I could probably count on one hand the times I've had before marriage, sex sober, <laughs> or performed stand up comedy right, right, sober. Right. And and yeah, I, sure. I, I surely uh, uh, performing, I, I tricked myself into thinking that I was. Um, uh, it opened up doors, man. But then it's like I think of people like yeah, you know, uh, Tom Waits is always the thing for me. When with, I feel like once he cleaned up, he actually became far more fucking interesting as a as a artist than he was when he was doing heroin and drinking. Yeah. Yeah. Do you? No, I mean, I you know it, it, that ended that ended up being my experience. I mean, I I think you know it took me about five years before I could write a song sober. So it took me a long time. But uh, you know, I did feel like when I started writing again, I felt like you know it was clearer and sort of more honest in a way. Um, because you didn't have this this haze or this gauze of, of alcohol um, surrounding it, you know? And so it was, it felt a little more genuine. So, you know, I don't, and I, you know, I don't know why it took me so long, uh, but, and, you know, I don't think it takes everyone anywhere near that long, but uh, I was finally able to push through and, and, and realize that, yeah, oh yeah, I can, I can do this thing. Um, I can do it without the alcohol. Like that wasn't really what was you know allowing me to do it in the first place. What was allowing me to do it was a desire to do it, and you know, sort of a fascination with the process. It's like, and that shit was still there. So, was that? Uh, were there times within that period though where you were just trying and just getting frustrated with your not being able to find it? Oh yeah. Oh. Uh, oh yeah. Yeah. A lot. You know, um, it was interesting, like through that, through that period, 
just kind of not through design, just kind of through happenstance, I ended up starting to write a fair amount of music for, um, you know, for, for, for picture. So I don't know, uh, shorts and, uh, web series and stuff like that to scoring work. And, you know, and it was interesting. That shit was really, I mean, it, that shit's a ton of work. I don't want to diminish that, but it came to me so easily. And, but during that period, you know, that was, that would come to me so easily, but then I would go and try to write a song and, I, and it was impossible. And so, yeah, it was, it was totally frustrating. I mean, I, 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 I just didn't feel like I could get anything finished. Have you gone back and looked at some of that, any of the stuff from that period and were like, Oh wait, maybe this isn't so bad after all. You know, that's a really good question. I, I, I haven't, I should, um, you know, I should go back through and sort of see what, what I was doing then, you know, I mean, I still have like, you know, I still have all those sessions, um, but yeah, I haven't checked them out. That's, that's not a bad idea. I mean, I, you know, I, it, they're probably garbage, but it's also, it, it would be kind of interesting to see what kind of, uh, sort of headspace I was in. I think you might surprise yourself because I only say that because when I worked on Jonah Ray's show, anytime I had a sketch that I just like, there's this things you write where it's like, Oh, this is fun. And this just popped out of me and everyone's like, Oh yeah, that's fun. The ones that I struggled the most with and were like, oh my God, this is going to fucking die at the table read were the ones that always were like, everyone were like, that's amazing. <laughs> it's like, so I, that's why I say it because you might go back and be like, discover something really great. No, that, and that's actually, that's really kind of heartening to hear you say that. But because again, kind of getting back to what you were saying earlier about sort of cliches or myths that we have about, uh, creative people, you know, and it's like, and there is this, um, uh, this trope of the, the drunken or strung out genius. But, um, you know, I think there's a, an equally pernicious trope I think is that, that things come spontaneously fully formed and that they don't take work. And so I, anyway, I think it's, it's, it's hardening to hear you say that, that like, the sh- the shit that you that you really had to sort of put effort and elbow grease in into was the stuff that was really the best and and I don't know I think it I think it's important for anybody who's like especially starting out in some sort of creative field you really have to disabuse yourself of that idea that the best stuff comes sort of unbidden you know now I'm not saying that doesn't happen it does like sometimes. I get ideas for melodies all the time when I'm falling asleep or I don't know, I'll be in the car and that shit can be really good. But even with that stuff, you do, then you have to take that kernel, that seed and tend to it and sort of, and, and put a lot of work and effort into it to develop it. And so anyway, that's kind of a, a long winded ramble, but uh I like hearing you say that. I I think people like the myth, and that's why everybody on fucking earth thinks they can write or do whatever because they hear the story of like, well, the Rolling Stones wrote Brown Sugar in three minutes. It's like, yeah, okay, but what about all the other fucking songs that they wrote? (laughs) It's like everybody has that one. Exactly. 
and um, and most of the stuff they wrote in the eighties, no. they should have probably taken a lot more time to write. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's funny. That's a good point. Um, but no, no, I think yeah, I think it's really good to. I mean, listen, I'm forty years old and I've been doing this my whole adult life, and I still have that sort of hang up in somewhere in my head where it's like, oh. If, you know, if I have to go and sort of really think about this or work through it, then it's not going to be good. You know, and it's like that's uh, I have to fight hard against that uh, against that notion. You know, how was it going into this? Because your most recent album was when did that come out? That came out last year. Yeah, it came out in, uh, end of May uh, 2019. So yeah, a little less than a year ago. Did you plan on making an album or were you just like, hey, I have all these songs and I'm going to fucking put this thing out there? Well, a little of both. I mean, I, I kind of, even after I, uh, you know, after I went to rehab in 2011, I thought it was, I mean, I thought I'd put out another record in like 2013, you know, like that was my plan. And then it became, you know, for the reasons we've discussed, it was difficult to write songs. So it became apparent that that uh, goal was not going to be met. And um, I remember sort of saying to myself at some point, probably when I was in my mid-30s, 35, um, I want to put out one more record before I hit 40. And, and, and the record that came out last year, Heartbreak City, it came out on May 31st. And on June 1st, I turned 40. So I just fucking made it. I just hit the deadline. Um, you know, but um, I rambled on. I forgot what the fucking question was. Where did, where did we start with this? You were asking. Oh, if you decided the to put the, put the album, if it, you had the songs right, and right. then if so, it was oh, an after. Yeah. yeah. So, right. Right. Yeah. So, so, you know, part of me, there was this sort of like, low grade deadline in my head where I was like, I want to do it before 40, but a lot of it, I mean, that wasn't going to just happen. Like it, it was, in other words, it's like, I was going to have to at some point start writing fucking songs again. So, and it didn't seem like I had any uh, agency in that decision, you know, when that was going to happen. But for some reason around early 2017, I'd gotten hired to score this, uh, this, this like tween horror movie. And, um, and I started scoring it in like, I think November, December, 2016. And then I was almost finished in January. And then the director quit and basically everything sort of imploded and there were these lawsuits and all this shit. So it was, it was done. It wasn't going to happen, but, and it kind of like happened fast. It was like, I was, I think I had one cue left to do. And then the word came in that this thing had just collapsed. So I had been working on this thing for, like I said, a month, six weeks. And so I had these juices flowing and, and then like on a dime, it was like, okay, you're done with this job. But I was sort of, I, I was in the habit of going out into my studio every day. So I was like, what the fuck am I going to do? So I just kind of started fucking around with song ideas. And then I got the first one done and then, you know, no cliche, like nothing succeeds like success. It's like you, you get one down and then you feel confident that you can do a second one. And then that leads to a third. And then, you know, the first 12 suck, but then number 13 is all right. And then you keep, you know, you keep, you keep going. So 
I kind of got start. You know, it's weird. I mean, that that in a strange way, that bullshit uh, tween movie I was doing. I mean, it that led that led to me being able to write the songs for the record. Yeah, there's always. I always try to view any shit situation I go into as there's going to be a gift that comes from this. Something creative is going to pop out of this. Yeah. I've just got to suffer through this one thing. Yeah. But if you take that approach, usually end up all okay. right. Yeah, I, that's, that's a hundred. I think that's a hundred percent true. I mean, I, 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 um, you know, I think you, even if you really work hard on something and then it, it completely falls apart, I don't know. I, and that happens all the time in the business that I'm in, you know, especially like I, I'll do, um, you know, I'll do a demo for a commercial, uh, you know, for like a, whatever, a, a Taco Bell commercial or some shit. And, you know, nine times out of 10, your, your demo is not picked and you spent, you spent like, you know, a whole weekend working on this fucking thing, this 30 second thing, you know, it's, it's scored to a talking dog or whatever. And, but you know, it's, it's still, it's, it's, I, I always look at that stuff as practice. You know, it's like, that's the silver lining is it's like, all right, I didn't get this job, but I was able to get a little bit better at writing for a string section, or I got a little bit better at playing bass or, you know, it's like, it's, it's all kind of in service of the larger goal. Uh, I don't know. That's how I look at it. That's it. Philip Seymour Hoffman. Somebody told me that he, Everybody hates auditions. He's like, I love auditions. It's an opportunity to act. It's an opportunity to do what I love, and it doesn't matter what the end goal is. And it, I was like, yeah, because and I fucking hate. Yeah. It, I hated auditioning so much, I quit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Were yeah. you were you concerned at all, or was there any concern that after uh, what, five years from the first album to that merge would be not interested, or were they interested in you coming back all along? No, I was definitely, I was definitely worried about that. Um, you know, one of the things about Merge is that it's, uh, you know, the people at that label have become, it sounds really fucking stupid and cliche, but have become sort of like a part of the fabric of my life. And, you know, I don't necessarily see them all the time because they live in North Carolina and I'm in California, but like, I don't know. I have a lot of deep and, and meaningful friendships uh, with people at that company or who are sort of like in that world, you know, in the merge orbit. And, um, and you know, so I, I have maintained though, you know, it's like, you know, I, I would, I remember like when I was living in Memphis, I, I mean, I flew down to, to Durham probably two, three, four times in the two and a half years I was at Memphis and I would in Memphis and I would go stay with my friend Lindsay, who was the label manager and I would hang out with everybody. So, I mean, these were friends of mine. So I kind of do in a way, I mean, it's not like, it's not like I didn't talk to him for eight years and then just popped up and was like, I want to do a record. But at the same time, yeah, I mean, I, I didn't know. I mean, it's not like the first Apex Manor record really set the world on fire. I mean, you know, it, it did all right in terms of licensing, you know, songs to TV and film. It made made a, a decent amount of money, but nobody fucking knows that record, and nobody knows who I am. And so it was like I, I didn't, I never took that for granted that I was going to, you know, I I, I had twelve, fifteen songs done when I reached out to him, 
So I was terrified to reach out to them so that they were going to be like, hey, that fucking ship has sailed, you know. But, um, it's but not- they, you know, I think it's a testament to them. I mean, they, they, uh, that's, a co- <clears throat> that's a company that forges relationships with artists that last, that are really about the long haul, not, not just, I mean, I mean the long haul, like, you know, I mean, you look at someone like, like Jim Putnam, who, you know, you know, who, um, is a fantastic songwriter and, and just a really brilliant musical guy. And, you know, he had this band, the radar brothers, you know, and they were on merge for years. And like, I don't think they sold particularly well, but merge loved what Jim was doing. And so they wanted to keep putting out his records. And I remember about, I think it was about two years ago, Jim had a a new project called Mount Wilson repeater. And so he made this record and then I think he put it on Bandcamp. He didn't even go to merge and Laura at merge found out about it, called him and was like, I want to put this out. Oh, you know, it's a place where they really are interested in a long-term relationship. But anyway, I mean, it's, 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 I, I didn't all the same. I, I wasn't expecting them to say yes. Um, first of all, people do know who you are. Len Casper from the announcer of the Chicago Cubs. You're his favorite band. So you're wrong there. <laughs> <laughs> Secondly, and actually yeah. we discovered yeah, that yeah. rant. I, I forget if, how I learned that. If I learned it from him or you, but I was, I think it was from him. And I was like, oh, I know that guy. Like, he's a friend of mine. So, but anyway, but, uh, uh, fuck, now I forgot my point because of the Len Casper thing. But, so now that it's, it's done and that, uh, do you have, do you look back and go, I'm going to do another album and I'm going to have a different approach this time? Do you want to do another album? That was a ramble. How about that for a fucking ramble? <laughs> no, no. That's not, but actually, I, I thought that that ramble that ramble bore fruit because I think that last question is a good one. You know, like look. Truth be told, you know, I mean, I <clears throat> sorry, I don't know why my voice is raspy all of a sudden. I, I I quit smoking about a year ago, but I unfortunately got lured into the world of Jewel. What is so, that? Um, <clears throat> maybe that's what it is. Jewel's like a, it's a, it's a vape thing, you know, so it's like you vape nicotine. So probably worse than smoking, but at least I'm not smoking. I don't know. So, um, but it's, it's a way to get nicotine. So, um, anyway, my voice feels really raspy all of a sudden, but you know, I put this record out last year. I, I, I had pretty low expectations just because, you know, I feel like one of the, one of the benefits of getting older is that you get a little bit more mature and you sort of can see things maybe a little more clearly or have better perspective. So, you know, I wasn't expecting to put this record out and be, you know, the Arctic Monkeys or Vampire Weekend. But all the same, I, you know, I the, the, still, no one except for Lynn Casper and you, no one knows who the fuck I am. And, you know, and this record didn't do particularly well. And that's, you know, that's not, I'm not saying that to blame anyone. It's not anyone's fault. It's just sometimes that happens. And so, so I'm at this point where I'm kind of like, I don't know, do I want to do another one? Um, you know, do I want to put out another record? I don't even know if Merge would at this point. I mean, I, I don't know, you know, so, and you asked something before you landed your ramble successfully. And that was, um, <laughs> you, you asked about, uh, you know, you asked about changing 
uh, sort of doing a record differently from one to the other. And, you know, I do think if I decide to make another record, I think it'll be different than what I've done before because I, you know, that's kind of at this point, what the fuck do I have to lose? You know, I don't have any fans. So it's like, I might as well sort of really indulge myself and just do whatever the fuck I decide I want to do. Is there ever like a, a sound in your head, like what you've wanted your music to be that you just can't uh, grasp? I don't know if that makes sense. I feel like that with when I was working on stand up, I was like, I never wanted to be doing the style of comedy I was doing. I wanted something different that I was going for. It, did you, if that makes like, I wanted, uh, I, does that make sense? No, that makes that that makes that makes complete sense. Yeah, uh, there's always something in your head. You know, I think it's probably changed over time, but there's always something in your head that is in my head. That's um, it's so strange. It's a really good question because I'm thinking about it now, and it's like you can kind of hear it, or even even though we're talking about music, you can almost sort of see it. I don't know how to explain that, but there is something and it's like, and I kind of know, but I, it, but I guess getting it out is the really hard part. You know, it's like, I, I, I don't know if I've ever really matched what's in my head with what I've written or recorded. And, you know, maybe that's kind of what drives you. You keep going until you get that done. And then maybe you're just like, fuck it. I'm over, you know, and I'm done with this. <laughs> Uh, Ross, you know, and, and then and that and that's when you become a, that's when you become a realtor, you know. Yeah, I've always wondered that. Like with Coltrane, was Coltrane just like, was there still shit he was chasing, or was he just like he was like, I'm there, I can make create anything that comes to my brain. Well, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, maybe that, like especially with Coltrane, it's like maybe that is true. It's like you hit that point where you can get what's in your head out into the world, and you're like, oh fuck, I've left, I, I've I pushed through to another dimension. So I'm going to do this all the time, you know? Yeah. Well, uh, Ross, I want to thank you for your time. Where can people find your music, your social, all your, where can they find you and your music? Well, the, 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 my project now is called apex manner. And, um, I don't know. I mean, I think if you're on Instagram or Twitter or just, Type in Apex Manor and <laughs> or Google, and it'll it'll uh, it'll get it'll get it'll get you to me. You know, I guess I, I should, should have. I don't. Well, you can go to Apex Manor. You can go to ApexManor.com. I think then all those links are there. So, uh, and and stream his music because it's great. I want to thank you very much, Ross. Thank you, Dwyer. It was so good to talk to you. I miss you, and I love you. Thank you very much for listening to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. Please remember to rate and review the show, themattdwyer.com, patreon.com slash mattdwyer. Help support the show, tell your friends about it, and support podcasting in general. It's a great form. And I would like to say in the words of one of my favorite guests, former Black Panther, Pete O'Neill, power to the people.